0: If we want to have a human-centered future, if we want to have our grandchildren live in a world that we would like to live in ourselves, we're going to have to start making decisions now that impact how people and AI work together. And I don't think our society is up to speed on that yet. We're we're way behind the curve on this technology and we need to catch up really quickly. And uh, company managers need to keep up and catch up really quickly. And I don't think they are.
1: Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, president of Imperative, Bulletproof Background Checks. And this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. The use of artificial intelligence in business especially when it comes to managing people, has been a frequent topic on this podcast. Most notably, I recommend my conversations last year with Tim Sackett and Kate Bischoff. And my most requested conference presentation this year is about the ethical and practical considerations on the use of AI in HR. In fact, if you're in the El Paso area, I'll be making that presentation to my El Paso Sharm friends on February 29th. Today, I'm happy to be joined by a true digital pioneer who, over the last 40 years, has been actively involved in the digital transformation of our society. Michael Sherrod is the William M. Dickey Entrepreneur-in-Residence at Texas Christian University's Neely School of Business. He has over 40 years of entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial experience. In the pre-internet age, he was an early leader in digitizing the news industry and has subsequently founded or co-founded 19 companies. He was also the first publisher and founding board member of the Texas Tribune, my go-to source for nonpartisan coverage of Texas government, politics, and public policy. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Michael. Thanks. Glad to be here. So we've only known each other for a couple years, but your influence on me goes all the way back to the 1980s, which probably neither one of us really wants to admit, but when you helped Fort Worth's local newspaper enter the quasi-digital age with StarText, which was basically a dial-up newspaper, an old-school bulletin board system, and I spent a lot of time exploring that service on my old Apple II, and my grades in high school reflected that, so (laughs) thanks for that. But let's start our conversation by drawing on your experience from the 80s to now, old media to new media. As we begin to incorporate AI into how we work, what lessons should we draw from the news media's last four decades?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Well, the news media kind of missed the boat. You know, they were early uh, pioneers with things like Star Text. Uh, We call that a video text service. And... um, incidentally the start telegrams was the only profitable one ever done uh, pretty much everyone else tried to go way oh, really? too big instead of staying local but one of the one of the things and and unfortunately the newspaper industry fell in love with their business model which was a great business model there's no question about it uh, and have worked for them for 75 years really, really uh, tremendously well. And they, they couldn't give it up. And they couldn't see, as they said back in those days, trading dollars for dimes to go from print to digital. And as a result, there's only about five or six newspapers. So the advertising
1: developed. business model, right? That's right. The
0: advertising business model. And um, they there's only five or six that actually successfully made that transition. I mean, You and I remember back in the eighties, the star telegram was the media. If you didn't read that, you were out of the loop at the Mm -hmm. water cooler at work or anywhere else. And now the star telegram is hardly relevant to the community anymore. uh, And students don't even know that it exists. So um, that's kind of, they really lost their franchise. And part of the reason they did is because anytime you have advances in technology, Uh, especially as those technologies grow over time and become more and more exponential over time. uh, What happens is that uh, if you don't know enough about the new technology to combine it with the old, you can't innovate. You just can't. You can iterate, but you can't innovate. So as a result, um, the newspaper industry fell way behind. A lot of other industries did as well. And you have to have some ability to handle ambiguity and uh, to adapt to these new new kinds of technologies. Okay. But what I mean by technologies, as they as they go get older, becoming exponential, is like Moore's law. So Moore's law said that every eighteen months to two years, we could double the number of transistors on a chip. Well, Nvidia just released a chip with one point three trillion transistors on it. Now that that's mind-boggling. That's almost uh, inconceivable but that's the 33rd uh what sort of doubling so we're getting up there th- think what the 34th is going to be like i mean it's that's going to be unbelievable and for many years people thought we can't double again but every time we figured out how to do that so um i think the essential message from where we were in the 80s to where we are now is if you want to be part of the digital economy, you constantly have to learn and become aware of and learn these new technologies, these emerging technologies. And I would say right now, the most important ones are uh, AR, VR. Well, AI first. Obviously, everyone needs to know AI. AR, VR, Internet of Things, 5G, uh, local computing, cloud computing, cybersecurity, data. You need to understand how to analyze data and where it comes from, uh, if you don't know these very, you know, the very basics of these technologies, you're going to have a hard time remaining relevant in your work.
1: And and you pre, you, you uh, preceded all of that by saying, if you want to be part of the digital economy, I think there's very few companies that I can afford not to be. I mean, unless you want to just to open a Etsy shop and that's as far as that, that's you know, and you want to yeah. do you know tea coasters over Etsy. Even that's tech got a certain amount of new technology involved, but I don't think any of us can afford to say, well, we can keep doing business the way we've always done it.
0: Well, there's more than you would, you think. You'd be surprised how slow many large corporations are to adapt. And in fact, if you look at digital transformations, McKinsey came out with a report about three, oh, two years ago that said that only that 73% of digital transformations fail and none of them, none of them achieve the um, the results that they thought they would achieve with it. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. One is when you when you are moving a company with a digital transformation, you have to change the mindset of your employees, yeah, because if they're not part of that that change, they're they're just not going to be with you. They're going to move on. To something else, and anytime you mention the word change in any size company, people immediately become afraid they're going to lose their jobs, and their IQs are halved, I think, because they just stop thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, that's part of it. But I think one of the one of the secrets to a, a, a even remotely successful digital transformation is changing your legacy structures in the company. I mean, one of the biggest constraints companies have is policies, procedures, structures, systems that they have in place that are old school. And they let me give you a a perfect example, budgets. Most companies have a yearly cycle for a budget. If you are a company of any size and you have a yearly cycle, that means if an opportunity presents itself, you have to tell the person who's brought that opportunity to you, put it in the budget next year. Well- (laughs) You missed it. It's gone by that time. Things are moving too fast. So you have to have a more flexible budget cycle. And what happens to employees in these digital transformations is they're told, oh, we want to innovate. We need to innovate. We've got to iterate more quickly on our products and services, et cetera, et cetera. And they do, and they come with these ideas and they hit, oh, we can't do anything with it till next year. You'll have to get it in the budget. Well, that just kills it dead kills their enthusiasm dead, kills any mindset change that was coming dead. So if you don't change the structures they work with, they won't change their mindsets because they'll just be hitting the same wall they always hit. And that's where most companies fail, I think, in the process. They only use half the company and they tell the employees, go innovate. When they try to do it, the legacy systems and structures stop them cold.
1: Yeah, I I remember my... College internship was an aerospace company uh, here in the DFW area. and uh, back then they were just introducing Wang word processors, you know, <laughs> black screens with green letters. Oh yeah, uh, And I was all over that. I you know I, I was uh, you know, I was that era's version of a digital native. I mean, you know I had you know I had a, <laughs> a, a trash 80 and then uh, an Apple IIe. And, uh, and then, you know, so when I went in there, I, you know, I was comfortable with it, but there were still people hugging their selectrics, you know, their old typewriters and, and wouldn't let go of them. Right. And then in my first HR role, uh, I worked for an HR director, uh, who I'm sure is not listening to this, uh, who insisted that. Uh, his secretary, which is what he called her back then, uh, print out every email that he, that he received and he would read them. He would make notes on them. She would type those entries in and forward the email to whomever. So it's, you know, it's easy to become too comfortable. And I see it, you know, I see it in businesses. I see it with some of our clients, but it makes it really hard to hold on the talent. I think that's, you know, because especially if you want the, if you want to be competitive on the technology side, a yeah. lot of those, you know, a lot of your, your workforce are younger employees and yep. um, uh, not to say that us old guys can't keep up, but I mean, you know, a lot of us are choosing not to apparently. So, you know, the, getting those young, those young employees engaged and on board uh, and, and getting them just really tied in where they're willing to invest themselves into the company. Uh, you you you've got to make it interesting. None of yeah. us want to do the same thing, you know, that our grandfathers did. So, but when we talk about AI, so is, do you think AI is just another example of technological change, or is there something different about AI and how it's going to impact the way we work?
0: Oh, it already has. AI on on November thirtieth, twenty twenty two, the world changed. I mean, just about everything changed, and the reason is because this is a democratized technology. It is the most powerful technology that has ever just been handed out to anybody with a phone and a computer. I mean, this is extraordinary that every single one of us who wants to can have access to ChatGPT4 or 5 or whatever the newest model is. And it is, it's extraordinary in what it can do. And when gtp 5 comes out, even if it's just increase, that's going to be exponential in, in what AI can do. So this changes the way we look at work. This changes the way we look at employment. This changes the way we look at education. This changes the way we look at healthcare. I mean, this changes a whole lot of just about everything because it's going to basically change the paradigms that we have lived with even in the digital age up until now. And those paradigms, I think, are going to change rapidly. Um, A a good example is the ability to go from text to uh, video. Um, You can, you know, with the newest increases in in some of the various AIs that are out there, you can pretty much create a movie from text. Um, If you want to put your spreadsheet in, you can do that now and it can help you with your spreadsheet, your formulas and everything else. It can build PowerPoint. Uh, So a lot of the drudgery... Of day-to-day is, if you're willing to learn just a few things, can be 20 to 70% more productive. Now, think about that. 20 to 70% more productive. That is an astonishing number. If a company increased their productivity by 2% a year, they would be throwing parties. So, this is this is this is really changing companies, and they don't even know it yet. And, and here's why: up until now, IT departments have been the central space where everything happened, and everybody had to wait until IT did something. No longer the case. If you're sitting in marketing, or you're sitting in HR, or you're sitting in a supply chain or finance, you now have the power to create an innovation all by yourself, just for you. That makes you much more productive that IT doesn't know anything about nor will know anything about probably at least in where we are right now that that that's going to create a tsunami of innovation that is really going to change the way we think about digitization of companies
1: yeah i mean you can now create your own personal gpts Yep. And yep. it's a matter of time. And I know there are third parties already that are doing similar things and building custom maps. Uh, you know, you, you can plug into whether, whether it's, you know, open AI or, uh, Anthropics, uh, Claude, which yeah. I really like a lot. Uh, and then there's all the generative tools. Um, I did, a for the presentation that, uh, I make, uh, um, I, I, I share some examples of an employee handbook that I helped, uh, uh, somebody put together and I just said, you know, give me a, an employee handbook. And I caught a couple of mistakes that it made, but yep. just putting together that employee handbook, say, you know, an, the initial, you know, it was a good second or third draft. And it saved me hours and hours and hours compared to what we would have done before, uh, which would have been get a copy from somebody else, uh, <laughs> th- then yeah. go research, you know, what laws are applicable here and there and and start, you know, hammering on it. Um, but I guess all of that leads to, you know, you're obviously pretty bullish on it and I hear, and I am too, but I, I still hear a lot of people who are pretty bearish on it. Really want to push against the grain, uh, even business leaders who, you know, maybe they're the ones who've had those, those, those failed, uh, enterprise efforts in the past about what, you know, what works and what doesn't with technology. But so where do you think, the? how do you, you know, individuals can use it, but inside the enterprise, uh, the larger organizations, what are the incentives for executives or business leaders to really evaluate how they use AI in delivering goods and services to their customers?
0: Well, a lot of them are doing it already. I, if you look at worldwide companies, about 88% of them already have AI projects in, in place. And they're, they're, are, they're actively discovering what they can do. Now, I think they're being very, very cautious. They're they're limiting its its ability to spread throughout the organization. They're using it in very specific circumstances, like customer service, uh, you know, th- things where its voice capabilities can be really useful. Uh, they're they're not putting it into critical areas yet by any means, but you know, some in finance, uh, some in marketing, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I don't think there's much yet in supply chain, although that's coming along pretty well. Now, one of the reasons that companies are really intrigued by it, and I think you're going to see a lot more experimentation as they become more used to the idea, is that uh, hierarchical structures are struggling. The the way the corporation has, has functioned up until now has worked pretty well. But in the in the environment we're in right now, it doesn't work well at all because we're in a very volatile, a very uncertain, a very complex and ambiguous environment. And uh, corporations weren't structured to do that. They were they were built to build a core competency over time, to get really good at something, to make more money at less cost every year, pretty much. And if they if they grew, it would be to adjacencies or an improvement in the product or something like that. Well, now the lifespan of of large companies is only about 14 years now and before they get merged or bought or go out of business. So as a result, they've got to get way more quick in terms of creating new products and services for their their customer segments and hierarchies can't do that. So they're going to have to find a new path and they're going to have to find a, a path that allows them to be aggressive in taking advantage of volatility and complexity and uncertainty and ambiguity. And almost no one knows how to do that. There is a company called Higher, H-A-I-E-R, Appliance and uh, Electronics, out of China, that is structured in such a way that they can actually take advantage of the world we live in. But there's only a few companies in the world that are structured that way. They're very much like networks rather than hierarchies. And um, this company Say more about that. Like-
1: what does that look like? Yeah.
0: Um, well, first of all, it's had 23% growth year over year for 25 years, uh, which is kind of extraordinary. And it's a multi, it's a hundred plus billion dollar uh, company. They, have, uh, they own uh, companies all around the world. They own GE Appliance in the United States, actually. And they've turned GE around in a very short period of time. So uh, the way it's organized is 4,000 independent entrepreneurial units, And uh, about four or five hundred of them are customer-facing, so they actually they are actually talking to their customers every day, and they call that zero distance between the company and the customer. They're talking to that customer through social media all the time, and they and when they sell them products, they have Internet of Things in there that talk about usage and show them how often they use it and how they use it, et cetera. But let me give you an example. So uh, if you were in the company, let's say you were just hired. And uh, you would go into what's called the pool and you would make a base salary, very, very small salary until you had an opportunity to find a place you wanted to be. And let's say you had a friend who was working in the computer section of hire and you saw that they were getting a lot of complaints from gamers about their computer. So you think, okay, I've got all these complaints. I think I could start a new unit for gaming computers. So you basically uh, send that proposal into the, the main software of Hire and you get an approval and they give you some seed money and you go get 12 to 15 people to join you in building a gaming computer. And you get to decide your strategy. You get to decide your salary and how everyone's going to be compensated. And you get to decide who you hire and fire. Hire has nothing to do with that. That is on you. You can go outside of Hire Venture capital, if you want, or all of you can contribute your own money to it, and that can be part of your ownership. So, so once you do that, then you go and you you have an idea of how what you want. You contract with the uh, prototyping unit, then you contract with uh, the 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 um, software unit, then you contract with um, the di- distribution company. Uh, one of the distribution pods. And then you contract with the distribution pod, et cetera, et cetera, until you have a community of folks that are helping you build this gaming computer. And you have contracts with each one of them that spells out how everybody's going to get paid. And these contracts are pretty common. So there are templates for them. You don't have to make them up. and, um, And if along the way... It turns out that you're not doing a very good job. One of your other folks in the company in your little pod can say, I have a better way. Pitch the group. And if the group says, yeah, we like that way better, you stay in the group, but you're no longer the CEO. Wow. So it's very highly entrepreneurial for everybody. So anyway, so you get all this this little community of, of these independent units are, are making the gaming computer. Meanwhile, your group is talking to the consumer all the time. You build a prototype, you send it out to the consumers. They check it out. They give you advice. You iterate. You send it out again. Same thing. Very lean startup-y. So uh, once you have it down, you build the the product, you go into manufacturing, you tell them how many you want. In the the real world, they did this in less than eight months. First week, they sold 300,000 computers. Wow. And that's, that's how flexible they are. To build something like that in a regular hierarchical corporation would have taken years if you could have gotten it done at all, all the bureaucracy. So hire has basically been recognized for basically getting rid of corporate bureaucracy. And uh, like I said, if, you, if your group didn't make it, it would dissipate. And you, would, you and some of your colleagues would probably go back into the pool until you found another idea. Now they, they are super flexible. So I'll give you an example. A delivery guy was delivering washing machines to, to peasants in the farms outside, you know, in the, in the fields. And he discovered they were washing their vegetables in their washing machine. So he went back to hire and created a group that created a washing machine that had two cycles, one for clothes, one for vegetables. They sold, they sold tens of thousands of those things. And, um, and, the, and, and the guy became a millionaire and his group did too. And then there was another group that went IPO was their delivery group. So they started out delivering higher appliances and so forth. And now they are the largest delivery service in China. They have over 200,000 employees. Uh, they deliver are, are people who deliver goods to millions of locations, but only 30% of what they deliver is higher. They've, they've expanded to everyone else in China because they have such a fabulous network for delivery. They went IPO, and the, the people who started all became millionaires overnight, but they're still part of hire. So th- it, it can take advantage of new things very, very quickly. And if it doesn't work, they, they dissipate. And another group that has an idea or sees an opportunity it takes its place. Hierarchical companies can't do that. Uh, it, it's way too scary for them. Uh, it's scary for the employees too. But Hire has been able to recruit people from all over the world who want to to have this opportunity because it's not being like an entrepreneur out there by yourself. You have a brand. You have marketing capability. You have money available. You have eager employees who want to be entrepreneurial. You've got customers already. I mean, there's a lot to like about that. And you still have the upside of making a lot of money.
1: And so- you know, that model allows for quicker adoption of technology and it's kind of the, the fail fast uh, approach. Yeah. And so we try it and it doesn't work. And then we, we iterate and try it again or try something different.
0: Yeah. It's a startup factory basically. Mm -hmm. And those that work, keep going and make money. And those that don't try again.
1: Wow. And so that's, Google's 20% innovation time kind of thing on steroids, really. That's right. It's all
0: innovation time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, bulletproof background checks. At Imperative, our mission is to help risk-averse clients make well-informed decisions about the people they involve in their business. And we deliver it all with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on research credits. Then select episode 136 and enter the keyword star text. That's S-T-A-R-T-E-X-T, all one word. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Michael Sherrod. So anytime we introduce new technologies, you know, they, 99% of the time, I mean, they increase productivity, they lower costs, they improve standards of living. But with every change, you know, there's somebody who's left uh, businesses or individuals who are left at a disadvantage so as we look at AI who stands to lose the most um you know I guess let's start with the we've kind of talked about the corporate side the people who aren't willing to innovate or make the change so on the workforce on the labor side who 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 stands to lose with the advent of AI
0: well it's interesting because it covers just about all socioeconomic. uh parts of the economy. So initially it's going to be customer service reps. It's going to be people who write copy. Uh, It could be script writers. It could be uh, advertising writers, et cetera. Uh, Secretaries, um, people who are doing jobs where they're adding value, but at a level that AI can pretty much already do. Um, So I think that's going to be first. And then you're going to graduate up to people who have very rote jobs. Uh, For instance, um, radiologists. Radiologists are very uh, highly trained people and they look at x-rays all day long and uh, they can, because of their experience, they can see potential problems or disease or cancer, whatever it may be. But even the best radiologists can only look at about 600,000 at best uh, x-rays in their entire lifetime. An AI can look at tens of millions and can compare them in a nanosecond. So we already know, we already have proof that AI is more effective than doctors at figuring out what the problem is in x-rays. So uh, I don't think it's going to be very long before radiologists or any a lot of other fields, you have to have an AI who approves your diagnosis before an insurance company will pay for it. So I think that's going to impact even doctors, even highly trained doctors in very specific fields. Um, Sonograms are going to be read by them. Uh, X-rays are going to be read. Uh, MRIs, I mean, everything is going to be read by an AI and a doctor probably for quite a while. And we know that uh, AI or any other kind of robotic device uh, or machine learning device is more effective with a human. And the human is more effective with the device. So we, right now, we're kind of in this space where cobots and co-learning are going to be very much, a, and co-working are going to be very much a, a part of the landscape. Uh, it's going to be a while, I think. Now, a while could be two years, but it's going to be a while before uh, AI can catch up to a lot of the nuance that humans bring to critical thinking and to decision making. Uh, and uh, and empathy, uh, you know. And here's here's something that I think we, we're not quite up to speed on yet, but I think it's coming very quickly. AI uh, does not have any emotions. It doesn't know how to be empathetic, uh, even though it's been trained on human uh, content. It's it has a hard time being those things. It can respond to those things, but it has a hard time being those or doing those things. And so I think what you're going to see is management is going to be split. Uh, AI is going to do the process stuff and humans are going to do the human stuff. And um, we know we have a management crisis in the United States because before COVID, 75% of people would have given up a raise to see their boss fired. Mm -hmm. After COVID, 75% of people who quit their jobs quit because of their immediate supervisor. So that early 75% translated into, no, I don't even want to stay here anymore. So they left and found new ways to work. And uh, what that tells us is that human beings have become so used to handling processes that humans happen to be a part of, and that made humans very unhappy. Now the process is going to be managed by AI, and the humans are going to have to be managed by humans. And That means we're going to have to go back to the humanities a little bit, understand a little bit more about psychology, a little bit more about empathy, a little bit more about all of the ways that we can relate to people and each other and have a much greater understanding of the messiness that people bring to the process. You know, we get sick, uh, we have children, uh, we have other obligations, we get divorces, we all kinds of things happen to us. And uh, we're going to have a new set of managers that I think are going to be specialists in understanding how best to manage human beings.
1: You know, I've been saying for a long time, you're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to somebody using AI. Mm -hmm. And I still think that's true. It's just that that person's going to be able to do the job of three or four people, or that the jobs are so radically going to change that that, that well, one person isn't gonna to have to do the tab A and slot A stuff all day. And so those other three or four people who are whose you know whose skills aren't needed for this particular role, um let's get into the ethical side of it. What is a company's responsibility as we just increase efficiencies. I mean, everybody post COVID is is you know we're dealing with you know you know slimmer margins than we were dealing with product cost, labor cost, everything's going up, uh, and so it's I think it's inevitable that we look for ways to reach efficiencies. But what are what is what do you think the company's responsibilities are as we as we begin <laughs> to deal with those things?
0: That depends on if the company is kind of a pre-World War II idea of who their stakeholders are or a post-1980 idea of who their stakeholders are. After World War II, we basically, equal stakeholders were shareholders, management, employees, uh, and vendors and the community. So those five were pretty equal. Kind of what well, we call
1: conscious capitalism now.
0: That's right. Yeah. And then the 80s came along and it was shareholder primacy all the way. And shareholder primacy has not been good for competitiveness in the United States. I mean, sixty-six percent of corporate profits have been used for shareholder buybacks for quite a while, and that has kept you know no new uh, R and D, no new products and services, uh, no market share gains. I mean, it's been pretty pretty bad. It, it's still growing, but not the way it could. Now, dividends are coming back, they say, but uh, you know we'll see. So, um, so if you're if you're pre pre, I mean, if your World War II thought process and equal stakeholders, five of them, the humans factor is gonna make a lot more difference to you. You're gonna you're 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 not gonna put all your money towards shareholders, you're gonna actually try to make people central to what you do. If you're post-80s in your philosophy, the economic incentives are too great. You're gonna let those people go and you're not gonna care. You're basically, hey, go find something. You're not prepared for the future, good luck. And it's all gonna be about shareholders. And I think, that's, I think that ethically and morally, we need to rethink that. We need to think that if we're about to make a, a, this step into pure automation, we need to be very, very careful about how we do that. And we need to bring people along with it. If we wanna have a human-centered future, if we wanna have our grandchildren live in a world that we would like to live in ourselves, We're gonna have to start making decisions now that impact how people and AI work together. And I don't think our society is up to speed on that yet. We're we're way behind the curve on this technology and we need to catch up really quickly. And uh, company managers need to keep up and catch up really quickly. And I don't think they are. I think they're stuck in their old model, just like the newspaper industry was uh, with their thinking. I think a lot of managers today think that AI is just another thing like a calculator that, you know, or, or an iPhone. And it is not, it is much, much more, uh, pervasively important than either of those devices.
1: Yeah. I've definitely heard older managers in the HR world and in other areas of the enterprise say things like, well, I'm retiring in 10 years.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, You know,
1: this is not a, this is not something I'm going to have to deal with or this isn't i I'll leave those decisions for somebody else.
0: Now, if you're going to retire in 10 years, you're going to retire in two because you're going to be replaced. I mean, seriously, uh, any rules-based uh, work, AI is going to be part of it really, really quickly. So HR is a lot of rule-based. And you know, you, you, when you're talking about company uh, policy and all of that, that's a lot of rules. And you know, 66% of people during COVID said they would prefer to work for a robot rather than a person because a robot would be fair in the way they applied the rules. So uh, HR, watch out. <laughs> Just giving you what? an early warning there.
1: No. Well, and I think you're right. Um, and there are, I mean, I've been railing against HR as being the police officer yeah. for the company for years. Right. And I think the, the, the HR professionals who understand the enterprise, understand how the company makes money, understands, Uh you know, the value of incentives, all those things are the ones who see the value in, in educating, uh, developing the workforce, doing those things versus, you know, uh, just looking for an excuse to write somebody up or just, you know, being the yes or, you know, yes or no answer to questions. So what kind of decisions, if, if I'm an, Entity and I see an opportunity to increase productivity by thirty percent by and when and let's you know in many cases when we're talking about increasing productivity we're really talking about replacing you know some of our labor with you know better technology. What are my considerations there? Uh, you know, if you know, do I wait six months? Do I wait a year for these other people to find other roles or uh, you know what? What should a company be, you know, a company that wants to act like, you know, a conscious capitalism type company or a company that's really focused on all their stakeholders? How how should they, what are the decisions? What should they be thinking about?
0: I I mean, I have pretty strong opinions about this and I'm probably an outlier on it, but the way I think that, what I think they should do, I think they should start training their people right now. And if people don't want to be trained, I think they should be aware that they may not be around very long. Uh, And that should be a message to them. I've always believed in absolute transparency with employees, Uh, whether I was working in a corporation after selling them a company or whether I was on my own, I I would tell them exactly what was going on so they could prepare. And I would do the same with the employees that I had. And I would say, we're going to train you to be experts in this in your field. So that even if you don't stay here, you're going to be able to go somewhere and maybe get a 40% premium on your salary, which a lot of companies are offering if you know AI. So um, I would start with training my employees and I would, would start by giving them the very basics of what it is and see where they went with that. See if they wanted more instruction, if they really got into it, etc. cetera. And I, I, I believe that human beings Right now, any worker is has to be a constant learner. You cannot stop learning, period. You can't give it a pause because uh, it's gonna be moving so fast. Uh, the, the course I took when AI first came out is completely irrele- irrelevant now. Right. I mean, it has absolutely zero relevancy to what I need to know right now. But, but it, it gave me a foundation in which to learn the new stuff. And that was what was important. And I told my students at TCU, you must learn this now, so it's easier to learn each succeeding stage because gonna, it's going to go very fast. Um, and that's what I would be trying to do for my employees. And I would, I would work with them to make them understand that the productivity, their productivity is going to go up remarkably, and if they have an AI with them, it's going to go up even more. And the more productivity we have, the more money there is to spread around for everybody. And, and I would be making sure that instead of rewarding shareholders, I would at this point be rewarding employees because I'm not going to be able to reward shareholders if my employees don't do this. Even if I try to go 100% AI, that's going to take a, a while and it's going to be very costly in terms of mistakes that are made, in terms of realizing, oh, you know, we actually do need people in this particular place. I would rather take more time and organically learn the issues, the ups and downs, than try to do it all at once and just mess things up remarkably so. So I I think people are an important part of this equation. And if we don't involve them, I think we're gonna gonna regret it. Uh, And I think companies that don't involve their employees are gonna regret it a lot.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to end this one. There's so many more questions I want to get into about transparency and uh, the generative AI based on employees' uh, own you know, work product, all, so many things. But we're, we try to keep this to a 30-minute podcast, and I never succeed. And, and my producer, Rob, yells at me all the time. But thank you so much, uh, Michael, for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And as always, thank you to Imperative's marketing coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffee. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.